0: Coming up. How does a 36-year-old who's never worked in a job his daddy didn't buy become the second most powerful man in America right behind Putin? Was America really built on the promise that effort and ability are always rewarded? One clue your enrollment may not be entirely merit-based when your acceptance letter comes with a receipt.
1: Isn't America kind of a rigged system that rewards people for belonging to the right group? I can clearly see
2: this game is rigged, which is what's going to make it so sweet when I win this thing! Woo! You're simply the best!
1: Better than all the rest. Don't the people at the top deserve their success?
0: Do the people at the bottom really deserve to be there?
1: Our guest is Joe Littler, author of Against Meritocracy. The Merits of Meritocracy, coming up on Philosophy Talk.
0: Shouldn't people be rewarded for their talent and effort?
1: Or should society treat us all the same? Is meritocracy just a smokescreen for a system that's rigged? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your
0: intelligence. I'm Josh Landing.
1: And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco.
0: Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative.
1: Today, we're talking about the merits of meritocracy.
0: (laughs) Meritocracy? Isn't that just a system that rewards the rich and punishes the poor?
1: It's the exact opposite. If we reward people based on merit, instead of family connections or wealth, or good looks, then anyone can succeed.
0: That's a pretty story, Ray, but it's just not true. People who are born poor stay poor, especially in today's America. (laughs) So much for the American dream.
1: Okay, so we don't have a meritocracy now, but wouldn't it be better if we did? No, it would be massively unfair. Wait, how could it be unfair to reward people for their skill and intelligence and hard work?
0: Well, how do you think they got to be skilled, intelligent, and hardworking in the first place?
1: Well, by a combination of inborn talent and seizing the opportunities in front of them.
0: Yeah, but they didn't choose their inborn talent, did they? And they didn't choose their opportunities either. When people start out with advantages they didn't choose or earn, does it really make sense to give them more?
1: Oh, hold on. So, rewarding people for things that have nothing to do with talent is obviously unfair, but... Now you're telling me that rewarding people based on talent is also unfair? What exactly is fairness supposed to look like? Well,
0: fairness is all about equality, right? I mean, everyone should get the same share of whatever society has to offer, no matter who they are or what advantages they were born
1: with. Okay, that seems great for distributing basic goods like housing and healthcare, but there are some things we just can't hand out to everybody. When you're looking for a doctor, to perform open-heart surgery. You don't just pick out someone at random. You pick someone who's good at their job. Yeah, okay, but that doesn't have anything to
0: do with what people deserve. I mean, if you wanted to pick the most deserving doctor, you'd probably choose the one who, I don't know, overcame the most hardship or donated the biggest portion of their income to charity. But that's not
1: what we do. (laughs) Fine, Josh, what's your vision of an ideal society? I mean, it, it sounds like you want us to live in that Kurt Vonnegut story. You know, the one where we level the playing field by injuring the most athletic and damaging the brains of the smartest. Oh,
0: no, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about that kind of future. Uh, I, we shouldn't cut down people who are
1: doing well. We should lift up people who are doing badly. Ah, because that's what they deserve? <laughs> Touche. Well, or at least we can
0: give some people a better chance of getting what they deserve. These days, many orchestras are tackling unconscious bias by doing blind auditions, where aspiring musicians perform behind a screen.
1: So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed behind the screen to find out more. She files this report.
2: Anthony McGill says when he first fell in love with music, he practiced the clarinet like an athlete training for the Olympics.
0: I liked sports. I grew up in Chicago when Michael Jordan was, you know, at the height of the Bulls and those championships.
2: With classical music came a series of hoops to jump through and tests to pass. But as he got older, he learned more about how those hoops and tests were designed. Those
0: setups are made in a way that perhaps discriminate against certain peoples.
2: McGill went on to become the first African-American principal player in the New York Philharmonic, an ensemble that's been around since 1842.
0: As outsized as some of the opportunities that I've gotten to perform and to prove my merit, there are many people that have had complete opposite and negative experiences trying to prove their own worth and their merit within that system. And a lot of those stem from race.
2: According to a 2014 study, less than 2% of the players in top ensembles were Black, less than 3% were Latino. Blind auditions, where musicians audition behind a screen, are an attempt to level the playing field. The idea took off in the late 60s when two black musicians took the New York Philharmonic to court, arguing they had been discriminated against during the hiring process.
0: One of the things that orchestra started doing to correct this situation was to start holding auditions behind
2: screens. Anthony Tomasini is a New York Times classical music critic.
0: So that the identity of the person would not come into play.
2: But now Tomasini wants to get rid of blind auditions because he says there are still too few black and Latino players in major orchestras, and identity should matter. Orchestras, he says, should reflect the community.
0: The idea of meritocracy in this case, that the very, very best players measured on some scale are the only ones who should be in an orchestra. I I just reject that.
2: But others argue blind auditions are too important to abandon. In 1970, less than 6% of orchestra players were women. Now half of the New York Philharmonic is female. The screen is an improvement over how they used to do it. Carmen Limone is the principal flutist with the Wichita Symphony Orchestra, and she spent thousands of dollars on flights and hotel rooms just to show up for auditions. In the flute world, most of the students and players are women, and the top orchestras Most of the principal flute players are men, like statistically that doesn't make sense to me.
0: I've been very lucky. I had a series of really great teachers.
2: Michael Morgan is the music director of the Oakland Symphony and one of a small percentage of black conductors in the country. He says so much of a person's classical music career is a combination of determination and happy accidents and intentional funding for music education in public schools. He's been conducting since he was 12 years old.
0: My teachers were all so overqualified to be public school teachers that for them, it just made it more interesting to be able to teach things at a level that you would not normally teach in public schools.
2: That, he says, is where the quest to diversify orchestras needs to begin. And he says this is necessary for anyone who wants the classical music symphony to survive.
0: You do have to proactively work to diversify programming and artists and composers. And it, it doesn't happen accidentally. You have to actually work at it.
2: Donato Cabrera, music director for the California Symphony, agrees. In 2017, the California Symphony became the first orchestra to issue a public statement committing to diversity.
0: It's so easy to get hung up on the three Bs, Bach, Beethoven and Brahms, and and of course Mozart, and and all the composers that we are also familiar with. Uh, But there is so much other repertoire that should be celebrated.
2: Now most orchestras have shut down due to the pandemic, but the movement for Black Lives has forced people to pay attention and listen. I truly believe you cannot fix what you do not measure. Afa Dworkin is president and artistic director of the Sphinx Organization, a group founded to address underrepresentation in classical music. I'd love to be here together in a year and say, wow, look at our presenting houses, at our orchestras today, and look at how far they've come and how far they say they still want to go. After the killing of George Floyd, Anthony McGill, the principal clarinet chair for the New York Philharmonic, picked up his instrument. And then he closed his eyes, took two knees, and kneeled in silence. He posted this performance online and urged other musicians to pick up their instruments and play for justice and decency. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed.
0: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.